This podcast is a presentation of University of California Television. Like what you hear? Consider making a donation at uctv.tv slash donate so we can continue to bring you more great programs. Uh, in 2005, an endowed lecture series was established between the name of the founding CAP Center director and the professor of religious studies, Wade Clark Roof furthering the center's commitment to and the deep concern of humanity. Uh, this evening, we have the special honor uh, of uh, hearing from uh, Manjusha Kokani and the co-founder of the Stop AAPI Hate and the executive director of AAPI Equity Alliance. She will be speaking on the topic of how to stop anti-AAPI violence and the bias. Uh, professor of the CAP Center mission, uh, part, of the, uh, part of the CAP Center mission is to extend the principles on which our diverse, uh, our, on which our diverse modern society rests, namely tolerance and respect for the views of others, the practice of civility and the efforts to achieve our common goal, common good. Uh, our UC Santa Barbara campus stands firmly, firmly against all forms of hate, violence, and discrimination. Uh, along with all of my colleagues and our many university leaders across the country have been heartbroken and outraged by the anti-Asian bias and the violence that our nation, our state, and even our own community have been witnessing which has sparked feelings of fear and anger among the Asian Pacific Islander, the Sai American community. Such incidents go against our fundamental value of UC Santa Barbara. Such incidents also spark demands for change. Clearly, it is time for a concerted effort among all of us to step forward and turn the tide against attacks of hate and prejudice, whether physical or verbal, individually uh, and uh, as community. We must continue to address all forms of racism and discrimination and foster inclusive, supportive, and safe environment. I believe we are seeing greater inclusion of all voices, including Asian Americans, in the local and the national dialogue on race, equity, diversity, and uh, social justice. And here today, we are broadening that important dialogue. As a campus family, we want our APIDA community and every member of our community to feel at home, welcome, accepted, supported, and safe. Uh, we help uh, create such an environment with open and uh, candid conversation. And I look forward to all we will learn together this evening. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Chancellor Yang. That's, we appreciate your words and presence. Thank you. Uh, now it's my, uh, let me just say this. I've been in the CAP Center directorship for three years. The first part was COVID, a little bit bumpy, a lot of Zoom. But it's gotten better. Things are wonderful. But the very best thing that's happened at the CAP Center is that we had the wisdom to hire an associate director named Dusty Hosley, 
who has coordinated these events for us over the yesterday and today. Um, this is his work, and he brought so many people to the table, the literal table, but also sponsors, community awareness he generated. Dusty, um, by way of introduction, we so appreciate your presence, all that you do, and this is already a wonderful success today. So I want to invite you up to introduce our guest and say a few words. Thank you for being here. Thank you, and uh, thank you all so much for being here today. Uh, I'm Dusty Hosley, and I'm the Associate Director of the CAPS Center, and want to welcome you, and thank you for joining us in person, and to those of you who are joining us via live stream on our YouTube channel, we welcome you too, and thank you for being here. Uh, we are excited to welcome you to this evening's lecture uh, by Manjusha Kulkarni, who will present this year's Wade Clark Roof lecture on human rights, and the title of her talk is Challenging Hate, How to Stop Anti-AAPI Violence and Bias. Before we begin, I'd like to thank our co-sponsors, including the Departments of Asian American Studies, Religious Studies, East Asian Languages and Cultural Studies, as well as the East Asia Center, the Center for Taiwan Studies, the Center for Middle East Studies, the Center for Sikh and Punjab Studies, and the Multicultural Center. The Asian American Studies Department is celebrating its 50th anniversary as a program since 1972, and so we are especially honored to be partnering with them for this event. And we're also grateful to the Multicultural Center for hosting this lecture in this wonderful space. Finally, this event takes place just a few days before the start of Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month, which begins May 1st. We hope you will join us in celebrating AAPI Heritage Month and that you'll be inspired by this evening's talk. This lecture is a part of a day-long series of events that the CAP Center has sponsored in recognition of the importance of challenging anti-Asian hate. Sparked by the COVID-19 pandemic, Asian American and Pacific Islander communities across the country have been subjected to dramatically increased hate incidents, including verbal harassment, civil rights violations, and physical assaults. Since its founding in March 2020, Stop AAPI Hate has become the nation's leading organization, tracking and responding to incidences of bias, harassment, and violence against AAPI people. Manjusha Kolkarni is co-founder of Stop AAPI Hate and executive director of AAPI Equity Alliance, which serves and represents the 1.5 million Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders in Los Angeles County. She also serves on the board of directors of LA Voice and is a member of the City of Los Angeles Ethics Commission and the California Racial and Identity Profiling Advisory Board. As part of her advocacy work on behalf of AAPI communities, Manju has shared her expertise with countless individuals and organizations, including the Aspen Institute, the World Bank, the United Nations, and U.S. Congress. For her work with Stop AAPI Hate, she has been recognized with awards from Forbes, Bloomberg Businessweek, and Time Magazine, which honored her along with uh, her Stop AAPI Hate co-founders, Cynthia Choi and Russell Jung, as one of the 100 most influential people of 2021. Manju holds a BA from Duke University and a JD from Boston University School of Law. She has taught as a lecturer in Asian American Studies at UCLA, and her work has been featured 
on NPR, CNN, CBS News, and in the New York Times and various ethnic media outlets. It is my very great honor and pleasure to present to you Manjusha Kokarni. Thank you, Dusty, for that very warm introduction. Um, good evening, everyone. It is such an honor and privilege to be with you all today. Um, I want to thank the Chancellor, Chancellor Yang, um, as well as um, Dr. Johnson um, and CAP, uh, as well as the Multicultural Center for um, hosting tonight's event, along with the panel that we had earlier. Um, I have to say it's just, you know, in my role, not only at Stop AAPI Hate and AAPI Equity Alliance, but at UCLA in Asian American Studies. So um, important for me to be in these spaces alongside faculty, students, colleagues, um, from whom I learn just as much, if not more, um, than what I share with you all. And I took copious notes even during our last panel um, from my co-panelists uh, who are experts uh, in their respective fields. Um, so what I wanted to talk about today is you know, as we think about challenging hate, we need to first understand it. For many of us, this is the first time really learning about um, the racism that our communities experience. And so I want to take you through that um, first uh, with some examples. These are uh, reports that were made directly to Stop AAPI Hate. We did receive permission from these individuals to share the uh, examples and their reports with you um, and with the general public. So you see what um, some of this racism looks like, which is you see um, cases of workplace discrimination, you see um, you know, potential physical assaults, um, and, you know, really what we know and what we'll talk about today is how that racism and discrimination runs the gamut. And for us at API Equity Alliance, along with Chinese for Affirmative Action and San Francisco State University, we began to see the emergence of uh, anti-Asian and API hate uh, as early as February of 2020. Um, in the earlier panel, I mentioned the, the case that we received uh, at AAPI Equity Alliance of a 12-year-old boy who was physically attacked and verbally assaulted on the schoolyard. Um, this was early February before there was a single confirmed case of COVID-19 uh, in Southern California. And another child approached him and said, hey, you're a COVID carrier. Go back to China. And this child responded reflexively and said, you know, I'm not Chinese. And when he said that, he was punched in the face and had 20 times. So we learned from that that, sadly, um, racism preceded the spread of the virus in Southern California and that it had already infiltrated the mind of a 12-year-old, right, without even any... Uh, immediate threats to his safety or well-being. He was um, making comments really uh, 
we saw that racism, you know, very early on. So at API Equity Alliance, we began to collect some information. I was approached by Russell Jung and Cynthia Che, who were seeing the same thing in the Bay Area. And we actually approached the Attorney General, uh, their office, and asked um, that data be collected. What was the problem? We wanted to understand it more. And what we were told is that um, the AG's office of California is not in the business of doing that. They rely on local law enforcement, but they don't collect this type of data. So we said, well, let's collect it ourselves. So just using a very simple Google form, <laughs> we put it out into the universe and were surprised that within just a few weeks, we got a couple hundred incident reports. That number, and, and let me just say, with very little outreach, with no media attention, that number grew and grew. And so we are now, through a two-year period, at 11,000. Um, we will be releasing the third-year report um, this summer. Um, but what was important for us as a national coalition um, is really to be part of a multiracial movement for equity and justice, building power in our communities, working in solidarity with other communities of color, and really advocating for long-term comprehensive solutions that tackle the root causes of racism. Um, our strategies include data and research, policy and advocacy, narrative change, and capacity building. And so I wanted to start off by sharing with you some of the insights we've gleaned from our data. Um, and let me just say, this is not survey data. It's only the direct reports that we've received. So these are self-reported. Um, and I want folks to know that you know this is just the tip of the iceberg. When you look at surveys, uh, a survey we did with the Edelman firm, if you look at AAPI data, you see anywhere from 10 to 20% of AAPIs have experienced some form of hate. Pew found it to be 45%. So what we're really talking about is between 4 and 8 to 10 million individuals have experienced uh, racism and discrimination just even in the last three years. So our reports, when you look at it, you see there are the 20 states with the largest number of reports. And it should not be surprising that California um, has the highest number because we also have um, the largest number of APIs. Uh, and so when there, of course, are more in our community, then that means that, of course, there can be more incidents of hate. You also see in New York, in Illinois, Washington, Texas, and other states. What we found broadly is a few different things. The most common example of discrimination involves verbal harassment, where it takes place most often is public spaces, and the individuals reporting to us um, are largely women and girls. So again, remember, these are all self-reports, so unlike surveys, we can't say that they're necessarily representative, and yet they do tell us and give us some important information. So what I want to say, too, is the fact that these are not mutually exclusive categories. So people can mark verbal harassment as well as physical assault. They can mark civil rights violation as well as avoidance and shunning. 
But um, as I mentioned, verbal harassment is the most common example. You also see their physical assaults, avoidance or shunning that is race-based, um, as well as civil rights violations. That includes workplace discrimination, refusal of service, um, being barred uh, from uh, transportation or transit, and then online harassment. What's important to note is, you know, we know and understand the majority of these are traumatic and harmful. They are not hate crimes. I'm going to say a little bit more about that in a minute, but that's really important when we think of what are possible solutions. Most of the hate um, that's reported to us takes place in public spaces. So two in five uh, took place. This is public streets, um, public parks. Um, and sidewalks. We also know that businesses are another place. Um, and oops, sorry. Also, one thing that's not on here is even schools and universities, right? And so um, what that tells us is that there's no particular place where people are immune from experiencing racism. And I want to say, too, is that, you know, we realize in analyzing our data, you know, a plurality of individuals identify as Chinese Americans. But really, the hate that we're seeing in our database is um, something that impacts all Asian Americans. You see the various groups there. So East Asians, Southeast Asians, even individuals who identify as biracial and also white, uh, those who identify broadly as Asian American. And what you can't see in, in, in terms of smaller numbers is also South Asians uh, at 2% and then Pacific Islanders uh, at under 0.5% or so. Uh, so again, impacting all communities or all segments of our community. So what are the key takeaways? As I mentioned, there is uh, this overarching impact. Intersectionality does matter. We see, uh, as I mentioned, that women uh, make up a majority of individuals who report to us. We also know that there are significant uh, numbers, uh, sometimes disproportionate to their population of youth as well as seniors. Most hate incidents are not hate crimes, um, and there's not a one-size-fits-all solution. So this is really important because uh, many in our, in our community have called for greater policing, have called for what we consider to be more mass incarceration. And when you realize that about 15% or so involve any level of crime, right? Which is to say many of these are not even ones that would be prosecuted by a DA's office. You realize that hate crimes prosecution is not going to provide a solution to much of uh, what has happened to our community. And um, let me say too, and I mentioned this in the previous panel, um, sadly, there's not a single study that shows that hate crimes prosecution uh, is uh, effective or has any efficacy, frankly, in preventing future hate crimes. Uh, in fact, the state auditor's report here in California showed that there are many, many gaps and problems in hate crimes prosecution that uh, really uh, further sort of limit uh, what people can get in terms of redress or accountability. 
there's not one profile of perpetrators. And so contrary to what you may have seen in mainstream media, African-Americans do not make up a majority of those causing harm. In fact, uh, one of the FBI studies came out recently showed that um, uh, white individuals were most commonly the perpetrators. And also for us, and, and this came up on the last panel, is that anti-Asian hate involves not only interpersonal attacks, but also institutional policies, right? And so I'm gonna spend a little time talking now about structural racism uh, and the history of our communities, which for many of us, you know, we didn't frankly learn in elementary, high school, or even yet in college, right? So I want to first talk about sort of the racialization of Asian Americans uh, as, as we have thought about it. You know, a number of civil rights leaders and individuals um, like Derrick Bell, Kimberly Crenshaw, Lonnie Guineer have talked about the racial ladder, right, where whiteness is at the top. Um, blackness at the bottom. And so where do we think of, and you know, of course, resulting or part of that is, is the role of white supremacy and then subjugation of non-white communities. So when we think of where Asian Americans fall, right, there is the outsider and insider framing. So in terms of outsider, one thing that often happens to uh, individuals in our community is we're thought of as foreigners, right? Or perpetually foreigners. So despite being here six, seven, eight generations, we get questions like, where are you from? Where are you really from? A question I got many times uh, as a child growing up in Montgomery, Alabama, um, actually it wasn't even a question, it was a comment. Your English is so good. And what I wanted to answer is, actually, my English is much better than yours. Um, but I chose not to say that um, for my own safety and well-being. But that idea that I couldn't possibly be American, right? Um, and then we have the insider framing, right, which is that uh, of the model minority. So yes, you are American. You are a racial minority. And so what does that mean? And so we had a really good conversation on the earlier panel about the model minority framing, which was popularized um, by uh, Professor William Peterson at UC Berkeley in 1966. He wrote a piece um, in the uh, New York Times Magazine. And really what he did there was to juxtapose Asian Americans and sort of specifically Japanese Americans and Chinese Americans versus African Americans. So he said, you know, Asian Americans are a model minority, African Americans are a problem minority. In his mind, it was because Japanese Americans, Chinese Americans had done well socioeconomically vis-a-vis African Americans. Despite being a sociologist, he seemed to um, be able to ignore slavery, Jim Crow, Reconstruction, um, all of those pieces that obviously contributed. 
And then also what it did is by just saying Asian Americans do well, it ignored the vast amount of income inequality in our communities, right? Like every other community, we have folks who have done very well, have high net wealth and assets, and there are those who, um, you know, often because of refugee or asylee status, have struggled socioeconomically, right? So he ignored that. Um, he obviously created a wedge um, and then really created a kind of silencing because by saying that you're a model, right, part of it for him was because Japanese Americans did not, in his mind, vocally challenge the incarceration um, they were a model, whereas African Americans who, remember in 1966, what was going on? The civil rights movement, right? So he thought it was a problem that um, African Americans were challenging secondary status and demanding civil rights. So for all of those reasons, we need to be really challenge the model minority framing. Um, much has been written about it. I really encourage folks to delve deeply into this subject. I've, I've really only scratched the surface. But when we think of the racialization, both of these framings are at play for our community. And so I want, to think, want us to think about sort of historically, when we talk about anti-Asian hate being institutional or structural, what does that mean, right? And sadly, I mean, for me, I think anti-Asian hate really is as American as apple pie. Really, from the founding of our country, there were structures and policies put in place to otherize us, to exclude us, um, to deport us. Uh, and you see that right away from 1790 in terms of who was allowed to have citizenship under the Naturalization Act. Many people are familiar with the Chinese Exclusion Act, but are unfamiliar with the Page Act which actually um, was uh, enacted in 1875, a few years before, and prohibited the entry of Chinese women just as a category, right? Um, so what it did is it labeled uh, women from China as being sex workers, being unclean, unhygienic, right? Um, horrible things um, to say and to use in public policy. And it also prevented the formation of families, right, coming to the United States and settling. Um, uh, that was a result of the Page Act. In the 19, we had the Chinese Exclusion Act. And then in 1913, we began to see alien land laws being passed uh, 13 states across uh, our union passes, California being one of them, in which millions of dollars of property were stolen from immigrant communities, many of whom were Asian American landowners, especially those owning farms, agricultural land. Um, and if they couldn't find anyone, a friend or a family member who was a citizen, um, then they really just lost all of that and even any ability to farm or, or use the land for uh, gaining uh, wealth. Then we had in 1917 the Asiatic Bard Zone Act or the Immigration Act of 1917. And this is really important because you took the Chinese Exclusion Act, which 
only, in quotes, excluded the Chinese, and then you basically excluded almost the entire continent, right? So South and Central Asia all the way to the Philippines, to Japan, uh, and really this was true for then almost 50 years, where Asian Americans, except for a tiny uh, number, about 100 or so per population starting in the 19, late 40s were allowed back in, but um, it was a result of the Asiatic Bard Zone Act. And you know, going so far as even the government seeking to repatriate Filipino Americans and encourage them to go back to the Philippines because they, the racism meant they were not wanted here. We see too that um, you know in the 19th century we began to have the colonization of the Pacific in places like Guam, Samoa, and of course even Hawaii uh, and the Philippines, and you know that was done through economic coercion, through military force. We started to see some of the first sort of uh, blatant scapegoating in terms of blaming um, the Chinese for the bubonic plague in the early 1900s. We also had, of course, as we all know, Japanese-American incarceration, uh, where 120,000 individuals were forcibly removed from their homes, 60% of whom were U.S. citizens at the time of their incarceration. The Vietnam War and the ravages of American imperialism, the murder of Vincent Chin because of the economic anxiety. Um, this really spurred the modern Asian American movement um, because not only was Vincent Chin beaten to death um, by two unemployed auto workers, the judge in that case essentially released the two perpetrators with a very small fine and no prison time. So saying that it's okay to murder individuals of Asian descent, right? That's essentially what the decision held. Then, of course, um, you know, the rise of the anti-Asian hate incidents, which we are talking about today, and unfortunately, the Atlanta shooting, where perpetrator drove out of his way to target three different um, Asian spas, killed eight people altogether, six of whom were Asian American, and that stemming from fetishization and hypersexualization of the Asian women. It's not all bad news. There were many, many times in our history where we had resistance, we had resilience in the face of exclusion, in the face of incarceration. You see the iconic photograph of the civil rights movement uh, march where um, everyone in the front is wearing a lei that has been provided by uh, Reverend Inouye from uh, the Pacific Islands to say, we are in unity with you. Similarly, Larry Itliong working with Cesar Chavez um, in the uh, farm worker movement, the Third World Liberation Front, we then had after 9-11. So in many of our own lifetimes, uh, a great deal of community organizing after 9-11, right, where members of my own community and others, South Asian as well as Muslim Sikh, were targeted 
um, after um, the terrorist attacks. The first three individuals killed after 9-11 were all South Asian, one individual who was sick, one who was Muslim, and one who was Hindu. Um, and on top of that, significant amount of profiling and surveillance, not only by NYPD, LAPD, but by the FBI and NSA. Um, I will share with you that there was a program called Special Registration, which was akin to uh, what happened to Jewish folks in the Holocaust, where 87,000 individuals, boys and men, were, um, were asked to register, not asked, required to register by the U.S. government. Um, 13,000 were placed into deportation proceedings. This is just simply because they're Muslim. Um, not a single terrorist attack was found as a result of this program. We also then had, um, so there was a lot of community organizing that took place after that. Uh, many individuals, including I'm sure um, some of you in this room, were involved in um, supporting Black Lives Matter, um, the movement, as well as the specific protest after the George Floyd murder. Um, and now we've experienced a positive solidarity for, from communities outside of our own. So I want to spend a little time focusing on um, the rhetoric, right? Because we've seen and we know that um, political rhetoric um, has been a driving force in anti-Asian racism. Uh, we know, unfortunately, after uh, President Trump used uh, terms like China virus, Kung flu, Wuhan virus, we began to see on Twitter um, an increase in uh, anti-Asian sentiment. Um, I know Melissa Borja, who's in the audience, has done much work in this realm looking at um, social media and ways in which uh, the hate has been documented. Um, what we know, too, and we did a report last October looking at um, what does scapegoating mean in terms of anti-Asian hate incidents. We found from our data about one in five involve scapegoating uh, language, which is either in the public health realm, economic, around economic um, anxiety, and national security interests, right? Those three areas. And again, it's sort of a, a loop in terms of when politicians use this language, um, it often then results in people in our community being put in harm's way and actually being impacted by individuals who use the same language, right? A number of reports um, in our database are identical in language to the ones that have been used by candidates as well as by our former president. What does public health scapegoating specifically look like? Here's a message from candidate Dr. Mehmet Oz. China gave us COVID, national security scapegoating. Um, uh, in this particular tweet uh, by Marco Rubio. And then here, this is an ad uh, that Michelle Steele ran against Jay Chen. Uh, and you can see that um, it's actually um, in the outreach that she did to Asian American communities and labeling, labeling him as a communist and with connections to the CCP. 
Uh, and then economic um, insecurity, scapegoating, and you see J.D. Vance, then candidate, now uh, senator, as well as Tim Ryan. So we know that this happens on both sides of the aisle, really using some of that same framing. So, um, so we have the piece around rhetoric. And then we also know that that second piece then is around anti-immigrant policies, right? So we continue to have under the Biden administration mass deportations of Southeast Asians, um, many of whom came to the United States as refugees who come from Vietnamese and Cambodian countries originally. We have programs like the China Initiative where um, over 150 scientists and researchers have been investigated. Um, their reputations have been sullied. It's even uh, resulted in ending of some of the careers of these researchers and scientists because of this Department of Defense program. Um, and exclusion, uh, exclusion not only of Asian Americans but also Pacific Islander communities. Let me say in terms of the alien land law specifically, right, we have a number of states now that have introduced bills that will bring back alien land laws. Uh, most notably Texas, which will prohibit um, the purchasing of land by Chinese nationals, uh, also Montana, Virginia, Georgia. Um, some of these are more specific to agricultural lands, but essentially they are solutions looking for a problem because we have not heard or seen any evidence of the fact that um, Chinese immigrants are purchasing land for nefarious reasons. I look at my own family, and my parents being immigrants when they purchased our first home in the United States. They did it so that we could have a home in a safe neighborhood, have enough you know, bedrooms for their kids, so that we could go to good public schools. Um, all of that now potentially being off limits to individuals just because of their racial identity. So what does this mean in terms of the path forward? Right. How do we put an end to hate? So we did a survey with the Edelman firm, uh, that is us at Stop AAPI Hate, of Asian Americans as well as Pacific Islanders, a thousand individuals, and asked them, what do you think are the answers to racism and discrimination that affects our communities? And so what was interesting to us, you see uh, the variety of answers. Law enforcement is number four, right? So it's not even in the top three. We also have things like solidarity with other ethnic and racial groups, more leadership roles and representation, more ways to report. So you see that our community members do want to share their experiences. They want solutions. And most notably for us, the first three, because these were the ones that we knew based on our 150 years of combined experience were the ways to bring long-term solutions to our communities. That is education, equity, and justice, community safety solutions, and civil rights enforcement. And so these are, in fact, the pillars of our work. 
What do they mean? In terms of community safety, really our vision involves economic opportunities, housing, physical and mental health care, uh, education in language and culturally relevant services, and investments in AAPI communities. Too often we see that we don't get the investment from business or government or even philanthropy. Um, more communities themselves now are beginning to make that investment in racial justice. I want to just thank the API Legislative Caucus in California that really um, led the way to get $166 million through what's called the uh, API equity budget. So we can use that for programs like Stop the Hate, uh, for media, ethnic media services, for educational opportunities. Um, really the kind of investment we do need to see from all 50 states. The, sadly, the only other two are New York at 20 million and Wisconsin at 2 million. This is part of what we see as being the solution um, to bring about change. What do we mean when we say education equity, right? Transforming our public education systems, um, ethnic studies, youth organizing, campus safety. Um, and we know that ethnic studies is also beginning to gain some traction. Um, just, you know, during the pandemic and after we saw that, um, you know, Asian American history is now being required in um, 19 different states with 15 others actively campaigning for it. Um, really a positive step. We think that ne this needs to be actually part of ethnic studies, like not simply just Asian American studies by itself, but part of a broader piece. And I'm so glad that in California we have that and we have, you know, my fellow panelists who are working on that very actively. Um, and then civil rights, and this is a key area for me as a former civil rights attorney, really protecting against unfair treatment uh, that's based on personal characteristics like race, gender, age, disability. Um, and you know, when we look at what the barriers are, we see that a report we just are issuing actually next week, you are among the first to see this um, data, we did a survey with NORC out of University of Chicago, um, one of the foremost sort of experts in the area of surveying, and they found that nearly 50%, nearly half, 49%, have experienced some type of discrimination um, in the last few years. You see that it involves public accommodations, workplace, it involves education, public transit. And yet only one in five say that they have officially reported it, right? So how can we change this and why should we change this? The reason we should change this, and I wanna get back to the issue of mass incarceration and policing. When you engage in only policing to address hate, what you do is you just look backward. You look at the one individual who committed the act and you say that, hey, um, we are gonna put you behind bars because of what you did, right? No education, no restorative justice, we're just going to put you behind bars. What about all of the other hate that's out there, right? You have only made a change in that one person, which is to put them, um, to incarcerate them. 
when we talk about civil rights enforcement, it's very different, right? What it is is forward-facing. It looks at institutions, including corporations that engage in discrimination, governments that engage, uh, and even sometimes academic institutions that engage in discrimination. And often part of the solution when there are these class action lawsuits or Justice Department suits that are brought is that in the remedies you have a financial penalty and you have trainings as well as an injunction to prevent it from happening again. So these are all in the preventative realm, right? Because a corporation may think twice about discriminating if they know that they're going to experience a significant fine again, right? If you train the employees, then they are less likely to engage in that behavior. And I know that this works because one of um, my first workplace was at a civil rights law firm in the Denny's consent decree. And for some of you um, older folks uh, who are my age and older may remember, that was the la largest class action lawsuit involving public accommodations when Denny's was the largest sit-down restaurant chain in America. And as part of that consent decree, we trained all of the employees we ensured that people could report discrimination, it would be investigated, they could get redressed. So we know that this works, and this is what we're advocating for, is strengthening civil rights protections and enforcement, providing uh, multi-language education so people know how to report, they know what their rights are, um, and then having a database. So we lack a civil rights infrastructure. With hate crimes, law enforcement's supposed to report to the FBI, and yet with civil rights discrimination, we have nothing like that. We have no mechanism nationwide to know and understand what's happening, and so that needs to change. So as I close, I want us to just sort of think about what are these changes that we need in our communities, right? We need to denounce scapegoating that's happening, and it's happening every day, so many of our elected leaders are engaging in essentially casual racism. We're seeing even the mainstream media prop up stories. You saw that with the, the Chinese spy balloon and others, um, where there's quite a bit of attention on China recently. Surprisingly, little attention on Russia who is actually at war with one of our allies, right? How interesting is that in terms of who is considered an enemy and who is not? Uh, repudiating policies that scapegoat Asian American communities. There are lawmakers, not only in Texas, but in our Congress who say that all Chinese students should be deported. Uh, I believe Marjorie Taylor Greene has said all Chinese individuals in our country should be deported. Um, this is very dangerous language and should really give us pause. We should acknowledge the government's current and historical roles in um, ensuing more violence and really begin to make some of that investment that I talked about in community-based organizations. Our civil rights report shows that people uh, most likely will and want to go to community-based organizations to report what they're experiencing. They have some level of distrust of government. They're not sure if they're gonna get the solutions they need by engaging with government. 
So I want us to think then um, about policy change, right? What do we want when we think and talk about comprehensive solutions? So given that um, a lot of the incidents involve uh, verbal harassment, we are really thinking of public health as an avenue for addressing um, you know, the mental health strains that come with thinking that you may be attacked. And let me just say, when we did a report with the Asian American Psychologist Association in 2021, 72% of Asian Americans in their survey said what they most feared was anti-Asian hate and not COVID. Remember, this was at the height of COVID, a disease that killed a million Americans, and yet 72% of our community members said they were worried, more worried about attacks. We introduced last year two bills in the California legislature. I'm very proud to say that we were able to get uh, the governor, the passage of those and the governor's signature. One is on increasing safety in public transit. The other is on expanding civil rights in businesses. And we're continuing to pursue solutions on the public transit front, really trying to get resources so we can begin to understand what's happening um, to our community members. As you all may remember, both you know, Mo uh, Michelle Alyssa Go was thrown in front of uh, a subway car in New York. Many, many women especially have reported being fearful uh, in subway cars and buses. So this is a really important arena for us um, as we think of safety and well-being. So now my last slide is really about what you can do, right? So there are many, many avenues of activism. We talked about activism a great deal on the last panel. You know, on a personal level, supporting and empowering your friends, your classmates, your colleagues. We're going through a really rough time, and when we look at those mental health impacts, 28% um, of folks who've experienced an incident of racism have really have said they've experienced racial trauma, which looks like PTSD, uh, heightened anxiety, depression, isolation. So people need that help and support. Advocating for your community to take a stand against hate. We have a model resolution which we think every city and county uh, government in the United States should pass to just say, you know what, we will not tolerate hate in Santa Barbara, in Los Angeles, in, again, every city and county. Um, and that's just the first step, right? Beyond um, saying you're against hate, you've got to put your money where your mouth is and to begin to look at what comprehensive solutions look like. We have a number of resources on our website. There are many others uh, that are out there, um, including virulent hate, which, uh, again, Melissa has spearheaded. So I think we need to think about um, ways in which we can get the resources out to our friends, classmates, and colleagues so they understand what's going on, they get the help they need, and then they advocate for change. Uh, we encourage folks to report to us, but also to report to other institutions. Now with California's Stop the Hate program, you can report um, to community-based organizations in your locale. You can also report to the Civil Rights Department, and they can, in fact, take action, right? 
both of those entities can ensure that you get redress as well as accountability. And finally, what we need is to support policies that address uh, anti-API racism and xenophobia. And really, actually, um, I would say more broadly, you know, I mentioned in the last panel that we are on um, a slow road to fascism. We are seeing not only the banning of books, but the closing of libraries. We are seeing widespread voter suppression all across our land, right? Um, in all of these different ways now, alien land laws, um, you know, efforts to deport our community members, it's so critical that we engage civically if um, we are U.S. citizens that we vote and we engage with our lawmakers because these are the only ways that we are going to get long-lasting, comprehensive change. And that's something that we all need. We want to assure that America is a democracy for not only ourselves but our children and grandchildren. And so, you know, I always say, like, democracy is not a spectator sport. Right? We need to all get on the field, put on our cleats, engage, practice what it means to be active citizens. And I think being at UCSB, hopefully you all are active in um, various ways in your classroom, on your campus, to make this also part um, of what we see as broader democracy um, for our union. So I want to thank you for listening. I really appreciate this opportunity, honor and privilege, and I'm open to taking any questions. Get your question. We'd love to get your questions. Uh, there are two microphones up here at the front um, because this is being recorded and live streamed. Uh, please come to the microphone and keep your question brief, and uh, it's open. So please, anybody, come on down to uh, one of the microphones, and feel free to ask a question. And comments, too, please. <laughs> We have so many experts in the room. I would love to hear any reflections or additions that you have that I uh, perhaps did not mention. Thank you so much. That was awesome. Um, if you might just say a few more words about what can be done in university settings in particular that you're seeing, best practices that are on the horizon that you feel good about, or things that you see that continue to be problematic, but just to place us in the university setting just a little bit. Thanks. Sure. While we're waiting for the students to find their courage. Yeah. Um, so I will start, but I actually would love if um, some of the um, – uh, faculty members and directors in the audience would also um, add to, to my answers because you all are experts. I'm, um, other than my adjunct pos position at UCLA, um, I'm not in academia. Um, what I would say for us is sort of twofold. Number one is um, ensuring equity um, in terms of uh, the curriculum, in terms of selection of courses, right? Uh, certainly here at UCSB and many of our California campuses, we do have Asian American studies. 
that actually is still very much a minority, right? So I think it's less than 2% of all campuses in the country have an Asian American studies department. Um, again, I think it's true in terms of ethnic studies more broadly. We are seeing attacks, right, including in places like Florida and others, where politicians are determining what gets taught, especially in terms of our history. Um, and you know, the anti-CRT movement, I think, is especially dangerous, right? Um, and, and we see in the high school level, too, right, that I, I believe in Texas there uh, are efforts to include in the textbooks, uh, which, of course, many professors are engaged in writing themselves, uh, the fact that there are two sides to the Japanese-American incarceration and even the Holocaust, right? And so we should, again, it, that should give us pause. The other piece, though, is policies... Um, around um, discrimination that happens on campus, right? So we know that it becomes very difficult. Uh, we've seen it at places like Harvard and others when young women, young women get sexually assaulted by faculty members. Um, I, when I first set up the Google form for Los Angeles, um, it was shared by, uh, some of you know Karen Umamoto, with students at UCLA. And so the first several dozen incident reports we got were from students, and a number of them involved faculty. And so their behavior to students. So it wasn't even just student on student, but it was actually faculty on student. So what are ways that students can get redressed, that there can be true accountability um, when there have been these incidents of hate and discrimination. Thank you. Mm -hmm. So uh, I want to just ask Melissa and others to ch chime in um, about what you think could be done uh, in a university setting. Please. So we've been talking about this at the University of Michigan, and I think one thing we've identified is that international students are very vulnerable on campus. Um, number one, uh, they have sort of uncertain immigration status, so when there was a lot of debate about policies that would really harm them in the summer of 2020, they were very concerned about their ability to stay in the United States. Um, number two, they're less connected to social networks that would support them if they were on the receiving end of an attack. And number three, um, they have less of an a language and a way of understanding a racist attack compared to American-born Asian people. Yes. Um, you are from a country where you're the majority, and then suddenly you're on the receiving end of an attack. How do you make sense of that? So we have been really pushing university um, administrators to do special outreach to international students who, who are vulnerable. Thank you. Diane and Naomi. Sorry. Oh, sorry, yeah. there she is. Thank you, Manju, because I can tell that you're inviting me to speak from the earlier panel, right? Diane Fujino, Asian American Studies. And um, I want to put forward two things. One are grassroots efforts, right? Um, grassroots activism, and there's a huge role that students have played historically and can play, and there's ways to get involved on campus. I want to say 
Look for those classes, like select carefully the classes that can help you to develop these kinds of structural analyses, ethnic studies I will push, sociology, history, English, other ones, um, and, and think about the professors who teach the kinds of classes that you want to take. There are internship opportunities on campus. Here the MCC is partnering with social sciences for the intersectional justice facilitators program. Oh, we've got someone. <laughs> the CAP Center has their internships. The Blum Center, the New Labor Center just had, it, it finished its call for the um, labor uh, studies training, la labor organizing training for the summer. There are opportunities. There are opportunities on campus. I mean, off campus, right, in our community, like CAUSE and the Fund for Santa Barbara, and widely across the nation. So one is grassroots organizing. And the second thing that I want to say is that, um, you know, when Manju's talking about, and when we talked about in the last panel, non-carcero solutions to the problems of anti-Asian violence, um, which are so crucial, there's a kind of line of abolition in this, right, which is about perhaps removing those carceral solutions, and, but it's also very much about finding alternatives, and it's very much a structural intervention into the kinds of problems that lead to anti-Asian violence, which you're talking about, or other kinds of problems, right? So we have to deal with health and wellness issues, with the housing crisis, right? Uh, living wages, right? We've had labor struggles and something that we need to do after lecturers and graduate students have had their strikes, but staff issues um, and, and equitable staff pay, these are really hard issues to deal with and address. I'm realizing I'm standing next to the chancellor right now. <laughs> <laughs> but um, these are things that the university has to, and I will say that there are many entities on the campus, students, staff, and faculty who are working on these issues, and we need support from high and from low. Thank you, Diane. Thank you, Thank you Melissa. Other questions, comments? <laughs> I know you said that the uh, third report is coming this summer, and I don't know if you've started analyzing it, but have you seen, uh, we've had a change of presidential administrations, and, and at least from at that level, the presidential level, a change in rhetoric. Have you seen any change in the re, uh, results of the reporting uh, from South API 8? Right, that's a great question. Um, I don't know that we've seen any specifically. I mean, I think what's interesting is that even the previous comments, right, or the comments by the previous president continue to reverberate, right, and people even use those now, right? What's interesting is, you know, I often get the question and, and our team gets a question, well, now that COVID's over, right, has the racism gone down? And what we've seen is actually that it's morphing, right? So it may not be specific to those comments, but now that you do see it then related to the other types of scapegoating, right, which involve um, national security as well as economic anxiety. And I think especially with, um, you, know, you know, news reports around, as I mentioned, the spy balloon and other things, I do think, and we have been very critical of President Biden in terms of the uh, COVID lab leak theory, which... Um, I believe it was in 2022 where uh, there was a study done. Um, actually, it may have been earlier. And, um, 
by the government about the lab leak theory, even though it had been largely discredited. And even now you see the Department of Energy has made some positive indications around the lab leak theory, even though they said it's with like sort of low propensity or something. So it's like, why would you issue that, right, except as sort of racist rhetoric? And so um, it, it's very interesting, and unfortunately, even uh, the FBI had um, has made similar comments. Though, again, every every time that's done, you see scientists and researchers really debunk those theories. But but it is weaponized, right? It is used for then. American foreign policy, it's used for defense budgets, other things. And then what we know is that there is harm that comes out of it. Hi, I'm going to ask a question. My name is Norbert, and I work with Manju, and she doesn't know I'm going to ask this question. Ah. But we, we've noticed some students have le left to watch, go watch Netflix, Hulu, Amazon. You know, so how do you respond to maybe media representation, right? Asian Americans have swept the Oscars. Nathan Chen's winning Olympics. Uh, we're doing things like that. So what, how do you respond to people who say, I don't see hate. I see a lot more Asians on media. Is that a, a good or bad thing in terms of addressing um, anti-Asian hate? Are we only accepted if, if we win gold medals or become superheroes? Um, that's a very interesting question that you raised, Norbert. And I think, I mean, representation is certainly a good thing. And, you know, in prior years, we were not seeing as much representation as we're seeing now. Um, I think we still have a ways to go to get uh, the same level of stories, the same amount of um, uh, interest. I, I've actually gotten the question um, when I spoke at the Aspen Institute, um, one person uh, asked, is there too much representation? Really, aren't we seeing too many? people and um, and so the fact that there are folks out there that think that with even sort of the minimal levels that we're getting uh, is concerning uh, what I will share too is that actually when uh, I don't know how many folks are familiar with Kelly Yang she has written a number of uh, young adult and children's books and and even addressed head-on uh, anti-Asian hate Scholastic actually came out uh, because of Ron DeSantis and, and some of his efforts to, to talk about either, you know, changes, substantive changes to books or, or limiting publication of some of their books. So there's now been a pushback on that, but seeing that Scholastic is a major player in the publishing world, especially when it comes to children's books, you are now seeing what I would say is now the backlash to that representation, right? Um, but it's always a good thing, I think, when we are seen, when we are heard, when we have a multitude of stories about us, and not just when we're superheroes, right? It's when we are also the bad guy. Um, we have, you know, we're complex people like everyone else, and so I think, um, you know, 24 million is not a small number um, in the U.S., and we are growing uh, by leaps and bounds, and so I think our media should represent um, and be 
at least proportional to that. Mm -hmm. Oh, sorry, please. So in a similar vein to the former question about kind of the unseen ways that hate and discriminatory attitudes can be, what are some of your suggestions to like college age students on how we can educate our peers on microaggressive behaviors that are also kind of disregarded or not seen as uh, impactful as they can be on a lot of Asian Americans, especially within our age group as we're growing and also familiarizing ourselves with our own ethnic identities as well? Well, I would say to connect your question to one of the earlier questions um, by Dr. Johnson is the fact that, you know, what can the university do to help you, right? Because these are very careful conversations that need to be had. Um, and especially when they are our friends, our classmates, right? Um, we don't want to alienate. Um, others, we don't want to live in isolation because people make these comments. So what I would say to that is like, what resources can the university put into encouraging these dialogues and spaces where the conversations can be had? There are a multitude of trainings out there on how to do it specifically, and and you know I'm not a sociologist and I'm not engaged in that direct work, but I think that. Um, it's really important because you are in a space where, um, you know, thankfully, especially at a UC, there is so much diversity, right, of not only ethnicity, but gender identity, uh, ability, disability, um, queer communities, all of that, right? And that is what the university benefits from. And so it, I think, makes it more important, especially to the extent that students haven't had that access before and so sometimes you know it it can feel for the student who's saying it like a harmless question but then for us we know like yeah like um you know I have said that you know people would always ask me practically daily you know where are you from where are you really from and then you know the fact that my English was so good so um resentment certainly build when when you get those kind of questions um I would actually put it back to you and ask what do you think might be some of the solutions to um or or avenues and mechanisms for those kind of conversations I think you have the answer to your question. <laughs> I, I think she needs funding. 
Unfortunately, the chancellor's left. <laughs> um, there was a comment or question over here. Hi, everyone. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I have more of a question than a comment. When we have these negative comments said about our fellow community members from politicians and news media, where do we go? How do we dispel this misinformation? Is there a source that we can go to that you maybe know of? There's so many sources, right? I mean, I think the first step is really sort of, you know, to interrogate some of the assumptions, right? Um, so even in a discussion I was having last night with a colleague, we're, you know, um, this professor was saying like, oh, well, you know, China is this and this and this, and not in a bad way, like actually like it was all fact-based, but then I was asking like, but why are they, you know, like why specifically a competitor why is Germany not a competitor? Why is you know, India not the same level of competitor, right? Um, or national security threat, right? There's so many of these things, and yet what has happened is the United States uh, and our media has chosen to focus right, on China in a way that I do believe is race-based. So I think that for me, the part of it is like, beginning to think about what's the underlying assumption and then like how can we start to take those steps back as to like what it's embedded in your question you know like in the the comments that people make and so really kind of interrogating that um I mean, I actually will ask again, you know, Diane, Melissa, others of like, what would you say are some of the best sources of information uh, in terms of um, really addressing uh, misconceptions, misperceptions that then affect people in their daily lives? And, and others, please feel free to, to weigh in. I don't have a monopoly on the answers. So we might need to get back to you um, with some specific sources, but um, I think what is the issue for me right now is A, the casual racism of it, right? Just like, oh, it is China or it is, you know, whatever. Um, and especially, I will tell you, as being as someone who is South Asian, I worry that for the moment it may be China, right? But tomorrow it could be India because India has now surpassed China in terms of being uh, the country with the largest population on the globe. Also, India is moving from now the fifth largest economy in the world. I think in a couple of years will be the third. So then you have India, China, the United States, right? So then are we going to just, is it going to be just shifting, right, from one to the other? Because then Indians are also viewed as a different race. Um, so I think we have to just be really careful and think about it. And then, again, making those connections when people do that and say, you know what, this actually, this type of framing leads to, um, not directly, and we have to be clear about that, but leads to a certain type of thinking that then can result in um, direct harm to our communities, um, whether it be verbal harassment, whether it just be, uh, the casual racism and so forth. Thank you. Um, 
Do, yeah, do you have a comment, Melissa? <laughs> Question related to okay. India. Okay. Um, so I have been very perplexed as to why everyone forgets about the FedEx shooting in Indianapolis as an act of anti-Asian racism and violence. So the Atlanta shooting got a ton of attention. Very few people talked about the FedEx shooting in Atlanta as also being an act of anti-Asian racism and violence. It for those of you who've forgotten, uh, there have been many mass shootings. Uh, it was disproportionately impacting sick Americans. Atlanta and Indianapolis were similar in that um, communities were saying investigate both as a hate crime. Um, law enforcement in both situations has been resistant to that. I mean, the Sikh Coalition continues to say that um, the, the shooter in the FedEx shooting in Indianapolis had been viewing white supremacist material on his computer the year before. So people are upset, but I am curious about why we treat those incidents differently. And I think related to that, why we, I think, continue to center East Asians in Asian American organizing and forget South Asians. Yes, thank you for that. And um, I think that's such an important point and it does happen. And I think, you know, there are a multitude of reasons for it. I will say in terms of the reporting, because even our data, right, um, only 2% of the incidents come from South Asians. Uh, and when we did the survey with Edelman, we actually found that it's very similar to East Asians, like where across the board it's 20%, right, who had said that they experienced racism. So um, I think a couple reasons, and then I'll get to the Indianapolis shooting. One is uh, mainstream communities and media don't see South Asians as Asian, right? South um, East Asian, Southeast Asians don't see South Asians as Asian, and South Asians don't see themselves often as Asian, right? So all of those, I think, are factors in this in terms of what is considered uh, anti-Asian hate. Um, particular to FedEx, uh, the FedEx shooting, and by the way, we have said that it is a, uh, an example of anti-Asian hate. What's interesting about it, I think, one is you're absolutely right. I do think the ethnicity made a difference. What also happened, one thing that happened in both cases is that Christopher, my understanding is that Christopher Ray, the FBI director, said that neither one was a case of anti-Asian hate. Um, specific to Indianapolis, what was challenging is that it was a workplace issue and that I believe four out of the eight individuals that were killed were sick Americans. So it was like sort of half and half. I don't know if the numbers had an impact there versus you know six out of eight um, in Atlanta. Because things like Oak Creek and the Oak Creek massacre at the Sikh temple in 2012 are viewed as white supremacist, you know, hate incidents. Um, I think it can also be maybe religious-based, right? Because people then look at um, the Sikh community as being a religious community as opposed to being a, you know, a race-based community. 
No, I don't think that's true, but I think that that could be one of the reasons. The biggest issue for me with both of the, the framings and the FBI, and, and I actually recently um, wrote a law journal article on this, is what's difficult, and again, another reason not to look at the hate crimes enforcement or prosecution is most states and the federal government have a but-for legal standard, which means it can't be, it has to be racism only, right? So Christopher Ray said that about Atlanta because he thought, oh, you know, it involves sex, right? The perpetrator supposedly said that he was trying to rid himself, I mean, he said something horrible and ridiculous, which is that he was trying to rid himself of some sexual proclivities. But that standard actually also prevents prosecution and it prevents law enforcement from seeing things as being hate-based, especially when it comes to Asian American communities. And unlike other, like, you know, a swastika is a clear indication of anti-Semitism, a burning cross is a clear indication for law enforcement, of uh, anti-blackness, there's not the same thing in the Asian community as a marker for what constitutes anti-Asian hate. And I think that is part of what you're seeing um, more broadly as to why um, it is difficult for people just across our communities to see this as being, and law enforcement to see this as being hate-based because it has to, for them, be one or the other. So in fact, the example I gave of the, the child in Los Angeles, LAPD has said that is not a hate incident uh, because they say the two boys knew each other. We said, well, it doesn't matter that they knew each other, right? It can be both an interpersonal conflict and race-based. They're not mutually exclusive. So I think that's a little bit of what's happening also in Indianapolis, because I think there was a little more evidence of this person. I mean, I agree with you that there was a white supremacist literature they found at his home, but there were also potential sort of workplace dispute issues that complicated it for law enforcement. Want to honor your time and say thank you, Manjusha, for this wonderful talk. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you so much for coming. Uh, and for those of you live streaming, thank you also for being here. And uh, have a good evening. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, Visit us online at uctv.tv.